Last time we spoke about the first adventure of the Chindits. Eccentric and quite literally a madman, Wingate was championed by Wayful to create a guerrilla unit to perform operations in Burma. Wingate soon readjusted the group to be a long-range penetration group known as the Chindits. Their purpose was to disrupt the Japanese behind their front lines. The eccentric Wingate proved to be capable of turning men into onion-wearing jungle warriors, and they marched into the jungle to sabotage railway lines to hinder the Japanese. Their first mission was met with tremendous disaster after disaster, but surprisingly by the end they had achieved their goal of blowing up some railways. We finished off by talking about a lesser known allied partner during the Pacific War, Free France. The Japanese had ignored them for a very long time, but eventually enough was enough and they seized Guangzhou on from Free France, thus ending their position in China. But today we are venturing back to the Aleutians. This episode is the landing in Amchitka and the invasion of the Russells. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube where I'm just now finishing off a series on lesser-known facts about Pearl Harbor. And just a friendly reminder, I now have a Patreon account. You can find it at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. Over there, you can find early access to all of my content, including podcasts and exclusive content. To give you an idea of what exclusive content means, I am in the works of creating an exclusive podcast explaining why the Japanese military performed so many atrocities? What is the background that caused them to be so brutal? If any of that is of interest to you, go check it out, or you know you can catch me over at the Pacific War Discord, or over at the Kings and Generals Discord server. Now the last time we were in the Aleutians, the Americans had taken Adak back on August the 30th of 1942, there they had begun building a new airfield from which they could continue to reclaim the Aleutian Island chain. However, the Japanese did not give up on their northern possessions and reoccupied Atu Island by late October. The Japanese acted so boldly because they believed the Americans were not able to construct an airstrip yet on the neighboring island of Amchitka. Also, during October, Kiska was reinforced by a massive amount of anti-aircraft weapons and an impressive underground network of bunkers. Now, initially, the plan for the Aleutians for the Japanese was quite simple. It was going to be a large feint that would see them gradually withdrawing to the northern Kurils while bleeding the Americans of lives and resources. However, all of the American activity in the north was surprising Japanese high command, 
and they now were beginning to believe the Americans sought to hop along the Aleutian Island chain all the way to the Japanese home islands to potentially invade Japan from the north. A rather insane war strategy to be sure, given the climate. And as a result, the Japanese high command decided not to abandon the Aleutians for the winter, and on November the 1st, they formulated a joint plan to strengthen the defenses of Kiska and Attu by February of 1943. They also sought to create a seaplane base at the unoccupied island of Shemya. Now over on the other side, the US Army planned to occupy Tanaga along with Atka after the Adak base was established. But for the time being, this was not a pressing issue. What was a pressing issue was a concern that the Japanese might seize Amchitka, 60 miles east of Kiska. Admiral Nimitz directed Theobald to preempt any such occupation and for Colonel Talley to go with a party of Alaskan scouts to go over to the island to see if it was possible to build an airfield there. The Alaskan scouts landed on the island having to hide immediately while Japanese reconnaissance aircraft flew overhead. They found test holes all over the island that had been made by Japanese patrols. Contrary to the Japanese reports, the Alaskan scouts determined Amchitka was long, narrow, and flat enough. Except, of course, for a volcano at the end, but this all indicated it could operate an airfield. And given the viability of the island and the presence of the Japanese hole testing, it seems that a race was on to claim the island. Thus, Admiral Nimitz approved the invasion of Amchitka, codenamed Operation Longview. General Marshall approved the plan to advance upon Amchitka and agreed to assign troops for the invasion. While planning for the Amchitka occupation was underway, major changes in command structure were also going on. On January the 4th of 1943, Theobald was transferred out of his command, assumed now by Rear Admiral Thomas Kincaid. Likewise, Theobald's second-in-command, Rear Admiral W.W. Smith, was also replaced by Rear Admiral Charles McMorris. Now, Kincaid was a combat veteran who liked action, and he was much more to Buckner's liking as he immediately went on the offensive, arranging for a task force to deliver the Army's Amchitka occupation forces of 2,000 men led by Brigadier General Lloyd Jones. Beginning in early November, upon discovering the Japanese reoccupation of Attu, General Butler sent missions against the island. Colonel William Eric Erickson led the Air Force to hit Attu, successfully destroying several beach installations, sank a cargo ship, and took out nine Zero fighters at Holtz Bay. During the first six months of 1943, Attu and Kiska would be attacked by the 11th Air Force, who would hit the islands with over 3 million pounds of bombs. In July, Kiska alone would be hit by 900,000 pounds of bombs. Liberators, Mitchells, Dauntless, Lightnings, and Warhawks took part in the aerial attacks making the islands unattainable. This is quite a lesser-known aspect of the Pacific War. The American airfield on Adak was little more than 200 miles away from the Japanese on Kiska, and nearly twice that of the distance from Attu. Any day the weather permitted it, American aircraft departed from Adak to strike at the Japanese, and it was grueling work fighting the Japanese and that of Mother Nature. 
Over on the Japanese side, on November the 23rd, the first Shemya convoy departed from Paramishuro, carrying 1,100 troops of the 303rd Independent Battalion, escorted by the light cruisers Abikuma, Kiso, Tama, and the destroyers Hakushimo, Wakaba, and the Usugumo, led by Admiral Hosogaya. But before the convoy was able to get to the island, the Americans sent a wave of B-24s on November the 27th, which managed to sink the transport Cheribon Maru, just off Atu's water. Admiral Hosogaya began receiving reports indicating a North Pacific task force was in the vicinity as well. This prompted Hosogaya to postpone the Shemna landings and to return back to Paramashiro. Ironically, there was no American task force in the North Pacific, as Admiral Theobald had literally taken the majority of warships with him for the invasion of North Africa. Now, Ericsson's constant aerial attacks forced Hosogaya to consolidate his vessels at all times and prompted him to take the entire convoy to Kiska Landing, the troops there, on December the 2nd. On December the 18th, Ericsson's aerial forces smashed Mchitka, destroying every building on the island. Mere afters, after the report of the damage, General Buckner decided to send the Alaska scouts in. The Alaskan scouts were also known as Kastner's Cutthroats, and they were led by Colonel Lawrence Kastner. The scouting expedition showed further signs the Japanese had been on the island quite recently, doing the same type of work as them, checking to see if an airstrip could be built. Thus, Operation Longview's timetable had to be increased. The Alaskan scouts reported a fighter strip could be built up in two to possibly three weeks, and that a main airfield in about three to four months' time. Now, by the end of the year, the 11th Air Force had managed to take down 50 enemy planes in combat, and lost around a dozen in that combat. However, over 80 other aircraft had been lost to a multitude of other causes, such as good old Mother Nature. You see, operating in the far reaches of the north was extremely dangerous, and the weather seemed to be taking a heavier toll than the Japanese. In spite of Mother Nature, Ericsson's bombers continued their work using rather innovative means. Ericsson pioneered a low-level bombing technique to raid the enemy and thwart the effects of the unpredictable Aleutian weather. To overcome the shortness of the daylight cycle, he was forced to bomb at night, and to do so, he would use a single plane that preceded the main force by just a minute to drop incendiary bombs to illuminate the area. It was a very typical Japanese type of strategy that they had employed for quite a while, so perhaps he was learning from his enemy. As I had mentioned, the 11th Air Force would literally drop more than a million bombs over Atu, Kiska, and some other islands under Ericsson's command. Ericsson himself would personally be in the air every flyable day of the campaign, excluding one brief October mission back to the States. On January the 4th, Admiral Kincaid, an American admiral who had seen quite a lot of action in more big naval battles than anyone else, finally arrived to Kodiak to replace Theobald. The very day after, Kincaid ordered the full troop landings on Amchitka to be executed. Butler was very pleased to have a, quote, fighting admiral. Heavy cruiser Indianapolis, light cruisers Detroit, Raleigh, and seven destroyers led by Admiral McMorris were to do the job. Yet, the cruel Mother Nature did not comply 
The weather became severe, forcing the Americans to postpone the operation for quite some days. Meanwhile, Butler sent a reconnaissance over Amchitka and more airstrikes against Atu and Kiska. These runs led to the sinking of the freighter Montreal Maru off the Kamandorsky Islands. Random side note, I am from Montreal myself. And the Katori Maru was hit off Atu. Because of the non-stop pressure from the 11th Air Fleet, the Japanese were only able to pull off eight resupply missions for Kiska and another four for Atu between December the 17th to January the 30th. Basically, it was kind of a similar situation to what was going on at Guadalcanal, trying to stop the Japanese from receiving provisions. By the night of January the 11th, the weather continued to look bad, but the storms slacked just a bit just enough that Admiral McMorris decided to depart with the 2,100 engineer and army troops led by Brigadier General Lloyd Jones. It was a risk, to be sure. You could not trust any windows of decent weather to be open for very long. McMorris also had ordered Destroyer Warden to take a detachment of Alaskan scouts led by Lieutenant Colonel William Verbeck to hit Constantine Harbor. The destroyer blasted through the surf at the harbor mouth shortly before dawn, successfully landing Verbic scouts. But as the warden made her departure from the harbor mouth, a brutal current smashed her onto a pinnacle rock, leaving her powerless. The poor destroyer Dewey was sent racing off to assist her, but the warden would capsize and kill 14 of her crew before the rescue could be made. Like I said, Mother Nature was cruel, and she was taking a heavier toll than the Japanese. Verbeck scouts did a full reconnaissance of the island, finding no Japanese forces, so the rest of the convoy came in. They came ashore the same way they had come ashore at Adak, wading through some icy surf. They were soaked with ice water and oil. It was miserable, but Amchitka was quickly secured. The American engineers went to work immediately to construct the new airfield. They would have 12 days before a Japanese aircraft emerged to the scene. It was a floatplane, which reported their presence back to Kiska. The men made good use of their 12 days, and it was the same story that had occurred at Attic before. Men toiling without rest in winter rain and wind, in the bitter cold surf of Constantine Harbor, wadded through black Aleutian mud climbed over large rocks and heavy tundra. They unloaded, carried ashore, stored, and protected their arms, ammunition, food, fuel, and other equipment. Even the smallest of kindling. Here in the Aleutians, the soldiers' bodily needs were more than that of places like the South Pacific. I can assure you, I live in just a place like this, where the nasty combination of ice, rain, and snow makes life miserable. Quite literally, I've spent pretty much like the last month having to go over to my parents' place because where they live, the ice has caused so many power outages this year. It is such a nightmare. And, you know, for those of you in Texas, for example, who complained about your power grid falling down, well, at least you're not in negative 30, okay? Regardless, it's never fun. And also a, a small point about when I had mentioned uh, the bodily needs of soldiers being more than that of other places in the Pacific. For those of you who don't know, in quite colder climates, you do have to eat more because your body is just using that energy to create heat. So when you look over at the Japanese side of this entire thing, it meant that they needed even more supplies to feed all the mouths. 
The Japanese commanders were shocked by the unexpected occupation of Amchitka, which lay only 50 miles from their main base at Kiska. The Japanese began their own series of airstrikes against Amchitka, hoping to hinder the construction of the airfield there. They knew if the Americans completed an airfield, the already relentless air attacks would only increase. The Japanese air raids caused considerable damage over the course of the following days. But the American engineers performed miracles, and they managed to complete the first Amchitka runway by the end of January, allowing a P-40 squadron to be landed on January the 28th. After this, the Japanese bombing missions became more sporadic until February the 18th, when they finally ceased. Just like the Americans, Mother Nature was just as cruel to the Japanese, and they simply could not spare any more aircraft bombing Amchitka. The Japanese were also losing a record number of aircraft every time they tried to fly in the harsh climate. They had to reserve their aircraft to defend themselves. Now, additional air forces were joining the daily raids against Kiska using the Amchitka launch pad. The Japanese were being whittled down slowly but surely in the north. Yet, we need to leave the north and head back down south to the warmer Solomons. After the epic conclusion of the Guadalcanal campaign, culminating with the success of Operation KE, the Japanese Empire now had to switch to the defensive. During Operation KE, on February the 1st, the Americans received a cascade of sighting reports from coast watchers and scouting aircraft. Some 20 Japanese destroyers had headed down the slot, and a small Japanese infantry force was landed in the Russell Islands. Likewise, Allied flights over the Japanese-held anchorage off Boon noted a sharp increase in the number of ships there. Now, as I had mentioned during Operation KE, the third run of the operation took place on the night of February the 7th and lifted 1,796 men off Guadalcanal and brought them to the Russell Islands. This prompted Admiral Nimitz and Halsey to commence their campaign to move up the Solomons to thwart any Japanese incursions moving down upon them. In January, they wanted to hit the Japanese base at Munda, but lacked the necessary forces for such an operation at the time. One place in the Solomons they could perform an operation against, though, was the Russell Islands to the southeast. Admiral Halsey decided it would be advantageous to seize the Russell Islands and to develop them while preventing their use to the Japanese. Thus, Operation Clean Slate was born. The idea behind it was quite simple. Take the island away from the Japanese so they couldn't use it. This would further limit the Japanese operational capacity in the Solomons. And the Russell Islands could be used as a launching pad to hit other places like New Georgia. As Air Force historian Kramer Rohfleisch put it, For Allied operations worked in such a way that each fresh base became a successive cancer in the structure of the enemy's defensive lines, sending out its tentacles and relentlessly destroying the equipment and personnel opposing it. Operation Cleansley was to be the first step in the conquest of the central and northern Solomon Islands all to culminate with the final drive against the stronghold of Rabaul. By the end of January, Halsey received permission from Admiral Nimitz to proceed with the invasion. The Americans would dispatch an infantry battalion and anti-aircraft units from Guadalcanal into two destroyers to occupy the Russell Islands. Likewise, the Japanese quickly beat them to the punch by landing around 400 troops as indicated by their aerial reconnaissance. 
As we all know, however, this was not a reinforcement of the island. It was just part of Operation KE. The 17th Army sought to use the Russell Islands as a backup extraction point if the destroyers failed to get the men off Guadalcanal. Admiral Halsey was forced to postpone Operation Clean Slate, believing the Japanese were going to put up a larger fight for the Russell Islands. In early February, the Americans still were unaware the Japanese had evacuated Guadalcanal, but Halsey finally kicked off Operation Clean Slate regardless on the 7th. The 103rd and 169th Regiments of Major General John Hester, alongside the 3rd Marine Raider Battalion, anti-aircraft units from the 10th and 11th Marine Defense Battalions, and ACORN-3, which was a naval engineering force of the 35th Naval Construction Battalion, were set to go. Admiral Turner was given command of the operation, with his Task Force 64 consisting of 8 destroyers, 5 minesweepers, 12 tank landing craft, and a number of barges and torpedo boats at his disposal. He was going to receive assistance from Admiral Fitch's land-based aircraft to cover the transports and two other task forces. Task Force 18, led by Admiral Giffen, consisting of the heavy cruisers Wichita, Louisville, and three destroyers, and Task Force 68, led by Rear Admiral Aaron Merrill, consisting of light cruisers, Multiplier, Cleveland, Denver, Columbia, and four destroyers. There would be other task forces in close proximity, just in case things got a bit dicey. And of course, unbeknownst to the Americans, the Japanese had already evacuated the Russell Islands by the 10th, closing off Operation KE. Australian and New Zealand Coast Watchers, alongside the U.S. Army, Marine, and Naval Air Reconnaissance, saw a ton of abandoned equipment on the Russell Islands, which Halsey ignored, as he was just dead set to carry out Operation Clean Slate, as planned, fearing the enemy might try and reinforce the island still. On February the 20th, the first echelon of the Russell's Occupation Force departed Guadalcanal under strict radio silence. It was a uneventful trip, and the transports were divided into three groups to hit their landing sites. The 103rd Regiment landed on Banica, easily taking control over the island. The 3rd Marine Raider Battalion did the same on Pavavu. The landings went completely unopposed. But the Marines quickly found out that the 10-man rubber rafts used for their landings had motor issues. Alongside this, the 169th Field Artillery Battalion somehow managed to get lost, and it took them over 19 hours to land instead of just 2 hours. Which really begs the question as to how the hell do you get lost trying to get onto an island? Anyways, by the end of the day, the islands were firmly in American hands. The men began digging themselves into defensive positions. As soon as reports came that the islands were secure, Halsey began pouring CBs onto the islands to supply their two new fighter strips, with lavish amounts of ammunition and aviation fuel in anticipation of expanding their air operations in the Central Solomons. But the Russell Islands were at the absolute limits of Halsey's designated border. Technically, they were actually going over the border just a bit. If you do remember, they had cut up the South Pacific into specific areas of command, and guess whose command was over that border? Yes, there was to be no westward progress, without approval of old General MacArthur's blessing. So the men simply set to work, and by the end of the month, over 9,000 soldiers were in the Russells, and the construction of a new airfield was occurring in Banica, and a torpedo boat base at Warham Cove. Upon learning of the American seizure of the Russell Islands, the Japanese launched a surprise airstrike, 
Twelve vowels and twenty-five zeros struck the unfinished airfield and torpedo boat base on March the 6th without any warning. They caused little damage, but it would just be the beginning of a three-month-long campaign of night air attacks. By late May, they completed an airfield at Benica, alongside a torpedo base, a training center, and a staging area for the future operation against New Georgia. Operation Clean Slate may have been lackluster when it came to actual combat, but it acted as a great practice run for what was to be the future of island-hopping warfare in the Solomons. The landing craft tank veterans of Operation Clean Slate would help teach others, increasing American amphibious capabilities. The Americans had learned a valuable lesson when it came to loading and landing operations. They had certainly come a long way from earlier experience during Operation Watchtower. Now back to the issue of Halsey's operation stepping on the toes of General MacArthur's area. Upon taking the Russell Islands, Halsey had his eyes on Munda Point, where there was a new Japanese fighter strip in New Georgia, around 120 miles to his west. The terrain looked suitable for a large bomber field, something highly desired. But MacArthur stood in its way, so they were going to have to talk. A face-to-face -face summit was made in early April, forcing Halsey to cross the Coral Sea to present himself personally to the General. At the AMP building in Brisbane, there was no reason to believe this was going to be a warm meeting. As we all know, General MacArthur's opinion of the Navy. They were probably a worse enemy to him than the Japanese. Halsey, to this point, had certainly not appreciated MacArthur's credit-snatching communiques. In fact, one aide to Halsey had referred to General MacArthur as, quote, a self-advertising son of a bitch. MacArthur had also declined an invitation from Admiral Nimitz to attend a command conference in Numea in September of 1942, which, as you can imagine, was quite a slight insult. MacArthur, of course, instead sent Sutherland and Kenny in his place, to which one of Nimitz's staff officers remarked, MacArthur found himself unable to be present. When Admiral Halsey met General MacArthur face-to-face, -face, believe it or not, they instantly took a liking to another. Shocking, I know. Within just five minutes, Halsey wrote, I felt as if we were lifelong friends. I have seldom seen a man who makes a quicker, stronger, more favorable impression. He was then 63 years old, but he could have passed as 50. His hair was jet black, his eyes were clear, his carriage was erect. If he had been wearing civilian clothes, I still would have known at once that this man was a soldier. As for MacArthur, he was equally impressed, writing about Halsey later. He was the same aggressive type as John Paul Jones, David Farragut, and George Dewey. His one thought was to close with the enemy and fight him to the death. I liked him from the moment we met, and my respect and admiration increased with time. In the year that followed, the Admiral and General would effectively coordinate their operations in the South Pacific. As Kenny and Kincaid had learned, and as Halsey would in turn, 
MacArthur was accustomed to deference, but did not bristle at well-reasoned opposition. MacArthur could yield to sound arguments. Of course, heated arguments would occur between the two men. Halsey's long-term chief of staff, Robert Carney, witnessed one event in 1943 where he said, The admiral, with his chin sticking out like a foot, told MacArthur that he had placed his personal honor before the security of the United States for the outcome of the war. MacArthur responded, Oh, that's a terrible indictment. That's a terrible thing to say. But I think in my preoccupation, I've forgotten some things. You can go on back now. The commitment will be met. Imagine that. General MacArthur almost admitting a mistake. Almost. That goes to show the character of Admiral Halsey. What they were arguing about, by the way, was Halsey proposing to attack New Georgia, and it turned out to be very much in line with MacArthur's thinking. MacArthur approved the operation on the spot, and it would intersect with his own plans for an offensive up the northern coast of New Guinea. Because, of course, the only thing MacArthur was interested in was the push north to the Philippines. Because of the occupation of the Russell Islands, D-Day for the invasion of New Georgia would be originally set for May the 15th, but would be postponed to June the 30th. However, that is far into the future for us. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube where I'm just now finishing up a multi-part series on lesser-known facts about the attack on Pearl Harbor. And just a friendly reminder, I now have a Patreon account over at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel where you can find exclusive content, such as my first Patreon-exclusive podcast on the fentanyl crisis of North America and how it compares to the opium wars of the 19th century. It's a pretty interesting one, I do recommend it. Amchitka and the Russell Islands were taken unopposed and with relative ease. The Americans were being cautious in their actions, but little by little they were breaking down Japan's new defensive posture. A few islands down, but many, many more to come. <laughs>